Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane. Each week we talk to an author about a recent book concerning Eastern Europe. Today we'll be speaking with Timothy Snyder about his highly acclaimed book, Bloodlands. How are you doing today, Tim? Doing very well, Hugo. Glad to be talking to you. Well, it's a pleasure to finally get connect with you again about your wonderful book. Uh, I guess what we should start out with is just give us a general overview of what the book is about. Well, the the book begins from the observation that 14 million noncombatants were were murdered in a short time in a relatively confined place. Um, The time is 1933 to 1945, when both Hitler and Stalin were in power. And the place is what I call the bloodlands between the Baltic and the Black Seas, uh, between about Poznan and Smolensk. The number 14 million is, is, is notable for its own weight. It's also notable for what it suggests to us about the two regimes because, uh, the regimes killed about 17 million noncombatants total in all of the lands they controlled at this time. And of that 17 million, something like 14 million, uh, were killed in this relatively small band of territory. What characterizes this place is not just this, 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 horrific total, but also two other things. This is the land where the Holocaust took place, and this is also the land which was touched by both German and Soviet power. So those overlapping definitions of the bloodlands are, are, the, are, are where I start. The book, the, the way the book proceeds is by way of a discussion of all of the Soviet policies of mass murder and all of the German policies of mass murder as they touched the societies, the peoples of these lands. Okay. And, you know, much of the interest that your book has garnered is rooted in the way you've uh, put the Stalinist terror as part, made that part of the story of the Nazi Nazi, um, racial policies that were unleashed uh, after World War II began. Alex, how did you come up with the idea of linking those two together? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because how people think about it depends almost entirely on their own cultural background. So if you take a family and you put half of that family in California, it will, it might seem weird for the people in California to make this comparison or to keep these two regimes in view at the same time. But the half of the family that remained in Warsaw or Kiev or Lithuania, wherever it might be, would, would take it for granted. That's the odd thing about this. I mean, the, the assumption that you could keep the Soviets and the Nazis in view in the same book is completely banal. I mean, as you know, in Eastern Europe, which is, of course, where all of this took place, it's, it's a little surprising, or I'd even say it becomes more surprising as you move away from the places where it happened. Because as you move away from the places where it happened, these events become more and more clearly structured according to the nationality of the victims, 
or the politics of, of, of the people concerned. Because we have this tendency, both according to our ethnic identifications or our political identifications, to try to separate out Jewish from Polish or Ukrainian from Polish or Ukrainian from Jewish or whatever it might be, and to separate out the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Because we like to think about we like to think about history in terms of nations, we like to think about politics in terms of ideas, which allows us to make distinctions. And these distinctions then take us away from the territory and, and then from important ways from the reality. So the point of the book is not at all that you can blame the Nazis on the Soviets or you can blame the Soviets on the Nazis. The point of the book is that both of these regimes were preoccupied with the same lands. And as you try to understand their very different ideologies, you come to see how in practice the ideological aspirations of the two regimes were concentrated upon the same territories, the lands between Moscow and Berlin. And once that becomes clear, then it's not surprising that this is where more people are going to be killed than, than anywhere else. And so as I write the chapters, I begin with policies of Soviet murder because they come first. But in the 30s, the Soviets are killing in very large numbers and the Germans are not. Then I move to a moment where the Germans and the Soviets are interacting in a very important and palpable way. That is to say, they are de facto military allies. That's 1939 to 1941. And then I move to a period, 1941 to 1945, where the Germans are doing almost all of the killing. I don't assume that, um, that there will be an interaction between the two regimes. But I also don't assume that there won't be, you know, so I'm not I'm not a Hegelian who is trying to understand how the two regimes are somehow moving together or somehow arise from the same spirit. What I'm doing is observing empirically when they do and when they don't interact. So the Germans don't have anything to do with Soviet collectivization. The Soviets don't have anything to do with the German policy of so-called euthanasia. But there are moments where they very clearly do interact. The, the military alliance is probably the crucial one. But even during the war itself, um, they tended to, to provoke each other to do things which were worse than they might have done otherwise. Well, that, I mean, that has been one of the most interesting things is the way you talked about that. I liked, I really liked that part of the book. I was thinking also that, um, you know, in a certain extent, I mean, this gets back uh, to the Historica strike a little bit. That I mean, I know you're not writing um, one side or the other of that. You're writing, you have your own perspective, which you just delineated, really. But in a sense, I mean, we also, you know, the, some of the ideas are that, you know, that we're running in the Nazis is this precisely what's going on in uh, the Soviet Union during the 30s that often, to some extent is provoking and pushing Germans in a direction of, of to accept fascism. Yeah, yeah. No, the the problem with it, there are many problems looking back at the historical strike. And and if one does look back at those discussions from from the perspective of what we now know about the Holocaust, um, they seem strikingly oversimplified, really. I mean, I took them very seriously at the time. They were one of the reasons why I became a historian and became interested in these problems. But so much has been learned that the very questions that were posed in the historical site now seem not very interesting. I think the, 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 the underlying problem, or one of the underlying problems, is that it, the historical site is primarily a moral and not a historical dispute. So you have certain you have a certain number of German historians, and the most prominent of them was Anschnolte, 
who were trying to argue that the, the, the moral responsibility for what the Nazis did in some sense rested with the Soviets, that the, what the Nazis did was fundamentally, um, in a Hegelian way, which is what I say, why I said earlier, I'm not a Hegelian, um, was fundamentally a response that the Soviets were the thesis and the Nazis were the antithesis in some way. And, and that was meant to be and was certainly received as a moral rather than a historical argument. Uh, whereas Jürgen Habermas and others who responded to Nolte were operating with the goal of trying to preserve a moral framework. And the moral framework was we build the German Federal Republic, we build the post-war republic uh, on the rubble of, of our guilt for the events of the Second World War, um, above all, the Holocaust. And therefore, morally, anything which endangers this, this position has to be refuted. And so the debate was really a moral one. And in the context of Germany or West Germany of the 1980s, it's perfectly easy to understand it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense historically on anybody's side. You know, so I, I think I think Nolte's perspective was basically indefensible. He doesn't know anything about the Soviet Union. He doesn't know anything about Eastern Europe. He's he's not a Slavicist. He's looking entirely at the whole thing from a German point of view and imagining basically that because there was certain kinds of terror in the Soviet in the Soviet Union, therefore the Germans must have resp- have been fundamentally responding. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Habermas is even less historical. Habermas is defending a moral framework. And I think it's secondary for Habermas whether Nolte is right historically or not. So I take a completely different position on all of this. My position is that the moral framework of history involves trying to understand what actually happened. And when you do understand what actually happened, you'll be in a stronger, not a weaker position to allocate um, blame and praise if, if that's what you wish to do. In my view, the Holocaust only becomes worse the further east we go. Um, the degree of German responsibility only becomes greater the more that we know about the Holocaust and about other crimes. But I also think that we can't, we can't understand the Holocaust. We can't understand the entire event by leaning on a taboo, which prevents us from investigating the Soviet Union or investigating the actions of, of Soviet citizens. We, ha- we have to look, we have to look reality in the face and see things for the way they actually were. If, we, if we're not trying to do that, if we if we um, hamstring our, our historical work because we're afraid of the moral consequences, then ironically, our work becomes morally much less useful. So interestingly, you know, where, where I come down on, on the chief issue of the Historikerstreit is that the, the, the unprecedented character of the Holocaust only becomes clearer when you when you put into the picture all of the other German crimes and all of the other Soviet crimes. When you try to leave them out, you're just creating a vulnerability for yourself. If you put them all in, which I think I was the first to do, then you're actually capable of defending an argument about the unprecedented character of, of the Holocaust rather than just insisting on it. Well, that actually gets to my next question. How do you, when you compare the Soviet Nazi killing policies, uh, what do you see as key similarities and what are the differences? Yeah, so I want to I start, I want to preface what I say by, by, by pointing out something which I have a difficult time getting across, which is that the book is not primarily a work of comparison. That is, it's not methodologically 
a work of comparison. In a work of comparison, you would take two units or two cases and you would separate them. Um, and you would, you would, then you would try to compare them across dimensions A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. A comparison involves a kind of abstract separation. That is not really what I'm doing in this book. In the book, I'm looking at a territory. My method is to look at a territory. And as you look at the territory, Soviet power washes over, German power washes over. Sometimes they interact. Sometimes they don't. That's all a question for investigation. That sometimes leads you to some surprising juxtapositions and to some, to some surprising comparative conclusions. And I don't shy away from making them over the course of the book, but the point is not to compare. And I have to stress this because what the way that these kinds of arguments were made during the Cold War, Arendt is the most important example, but there are many, many others, involve looking at the systems as distinct systems, as not in their interaction, not in their actions where they were the most bloody, but as distinct systems, as, as distinct examples of modernity or um, as, as systems that had nothing to do with each other. In fact, however it might be, they were seen as distinct, right? Mm-hmm. And of course they were distinct, but my method is to observe their deadly power on a certain territory. So my book is much more about when they do and when they don't interact than about what life was like in Moscow in 1936 compared to life in Berlin in 1936. So that said, what you can find out about the two regimes by adopting this non-comparative methodology does include some, some interesting comparisons. So, for example, the, the, the Soviets have a revolution which is basically in the past. It's 1917. And from their point of view, what they're doing is defensive. The Nazis have a revolution, which is basically in the future, at least for most of this time period. They understand that they can't do most of what they want to do inside or outside Germany without major cataclysmic war. And for most of this period, 33 to 39, or really 33 to 41, they're preparing for, for, for that for that war. So this means that regimes are operating on a different time scale. They also have different views of, of economic development. The Germans think that what they need to do is balance industrialization in Germany with an agrarian, pastoral, um, depopulated, utopian um, uh, empire, agrarian empire in the East. The Soviets, on the other hand, think that what they have to do is take a backward country, they see it as backward, and industrialize um, and catch up to the capitalist West. Where they overlap is not so much in ideology as in the territorial focus that these different plans for economic development bring. Because whereas the Germans see Ukraine as a breadbasket, which they're going to conquer, um, the, the Soviets see Ukraine, to use Stalin's word, as a fortress, which they have to master, the grain production of which they have to control so they can industrialize. So you can have different views of, of, of development, which leads you to, to, the same, to the same place. Then uh, this together, if you think about it, leads you to a distinction which is relevant for, for my book, which is that the Soviets tend to kill at home. They kill inside the borders of the Soviet Union in the name of an ideologically defined project of development or in the name of protecting what they call the homeland of socialism, whereas the Germans kill almost entirely abroad. Almost all of the killing that the Nazi empire carries out is beyond the borders of pre-war Germany. And likewise, the Soviets kill at times in times of peace, 
That is, in times of peace between states, they define what they're doing as class war, of course, but technically it's in times of peace, whereas the Germans kill almost entirely in times of war. Um, these are these are very relevant distinctions between the two systems. But the interesting thing is that you find out about these distinctions by looking at where the two regimes are are at their worst, which is precisely in the bloodlands. I think you end up with more inter- a more interesting discussion of how the regimes are similar, how they're different, by looking at them in their operation, in their lethal operation, rather than by looking just at Moscow and and Berlin and trying to be abstract about it. No, I think one of the things, you know, the perspective, though, is interesting. So I just think about it, you know, when we think about where were the more industrialized parts of imperial Russia pre-revolutionary, you know, we were talking about Ukraine and, of course, uh, Poland, but that's uh, outside the picture there, although it's in, in, in certainly falls within the bloodlands. And, of course, from the German perspective, they have much more industrialization further west. So uh, those, it's interesting. I mean, it, it sort of fits into their worldviews, doesn't it? Well, the, the 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 one has to, you know I say the Germans because I don't like to say the Nazis all the time because when one says the not says the Nazis one forgets that one is talking about Germans um, and many of the people who matter especially in the Wehrmacht in the East are not in fact Nazis in the sense they don't belong to the Nazi Party but nevertheless one has to be clear that when, that, that, that 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 the worldview I'm talking about. The, the view about economic development is is a Nazi worldview, where the the many gaps in 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 sober economic or political or military appraisal are filled in by a fundamentally racist and anti-Semitic understanding of the way the world works. So they the the Germans the German view that you could master the East and that you could you could absorb agrarian potential therefrom is based upon a very partial understanding of, of of political economy. It's based on a very limited understanding of what happened in the First World War. The First World War is crucial because the the Germans uh, at the end of the war in 1918, as you know very well, actually mastered. Um, an East European empire, the Baltics, Belarus, Ukraine. And there was an idea that Ukraine, which at the time was a nominally independent state, could supply the Germans with huge amounts of grain. This didn't actually work. But what the Nazis remembered was the was this notion that it could work. Their economists and even some some people in the Wehrmacht tried to remind them in the late 1930s that it hadn't actually worked the first time around. But they were resistant to that. They had the they had the very abstract idea that Ukraine was was a kind of a kind of breadbasket. But I mean, as for where industrialization actually was, the, the, the Germans looked at this very ideologically. So, Łódź, of course, was a um, one of the preeminent industrial cities in Europe, but it had become so by way, in large measure, of you know of of, of Poles. And Jews, as, as well as Germans, and they of course block that out completely. It's any industrialization, anything good which happened in the East in general must have been the work of, of Germans, and so on. They saw this whole Soviet project of industrialization as being something artificial, which shouldn't have happened at all, because after all, um, the Jews are to be eliminated and the Slavs are just subhuman. So this is not something which should have happened. Therefore, they think that when they go into the East, they're going to raise, destroy a lot of the cities and and they're going to get rid of a lot of the factories because it's really just they have just this zoological view of what the East is like, that there are just various kinds of creatures out there, some of which have to be removed, some of which can be enslaved in order to make way for what for the proper destiny of these territories, which is an agrarian paradise 
for, for Germans. So there, there's a kind of economic logic to it, but wherever the logic fails, the failures get, get filled in by um, assumptions about what will happen, racist assumptions about what will happen, which depend upon, you know, these, these fallacious views about the difference between different groups. Taking on from that, you know, one of the things, you know, your book is very much at the center of these, your, see, the anti-comparison, as it were, of Stalinist and Nazi slash German atrocities. Uh, but, you know, there's a third component to this story uh, that I think plays a really key role and also makes this book different from what I've read before. And that's uh, the way you treat Poland. Yeah, well, well Poland is obviously very important and, and and Poland is a problem I mean it's a problem because of the way that we do history there's a huge body of literature about Poland and Polish suffering and it has the problem that it stays within the national framework for the most part even the work that we do here in the West where we say we've we've transcended we've gone beyond the national framework we're still very often operating within it and even when there are really important discussions about Polish national history, like, for example, the discussions about Jan Gross's last three books, they also tend to confirm, at least in Poland, that the national framework, because people are arguing that a nation was either innocent or a nation was guilty. I don't think that's Jan Gross's intention, by the way. But the national framework ends up being changed in some way, but it ends up, it ends up being confirmed. It's very hard to get beyond the national framework. And then when you look at histories of the Holocaust, on the other hand, the state of Poland just does not appear. It simply does not appear. You have you have the history of political anti-Semitism in Germany, then you have the invasion of Poland, and the Polish state, you know, exists for a few days before before it's destroyed by the invasion. Um, and what usually goes completely overlooked is that a very important European state, a state in the middle of Europe, which has the largest Jewish population of any country in the, of any country in Europe. With the exception of the Soviet Union, has has been has just been destroyed. A state has just been destroyed. This is extremely significant, and most historians, Mark Mazow is an exception, but most historians just overlook this. It doesn't really work in the way that the narration of the Holocaust works. So, if in the history of Poland, the destruction of the Polish state is a kind of horrible um, climax. In the history of the Holocaust, it's a total non-event. And and what one has to do is to see how the, how statehood does. And, and doesn't matter for, for everyone. So in my book, I, I try to stop and make sure that people understand what it means that both the Germans and the Soviets could agree, this is something they could agree upon, that the Polish state should be destroyed, what it means to have statehood destroyed, to have the institutions of statehood destroyed, to have people lose their membership in a state. And of course, that's bad for everyone. It sets everyone into the kinds of competitions which would have been illegal with the normal functioning state, um, which Jan Gross describes so well in Revolution from, from abroad, but which we also see in the German occupation zone as the Jews who were the worst treated um, find their homes and their apartments and so on, their professions taken by Poles, which sets up a dynamic which would have been impossible in, in a functioning state. It would have been impossible in interwar Poland. Interwar Poland was a very poorly functioning state, but that sort of thing wouldn't have been possible without the destruction of the state itself. It creates the conditions, the destruction of the state, that is, it creates the conditions for the joint German-Soviet project of destroying the intelligentsia, which is related to statehood, because the Germans and the Soviets have absorbed and understand and understand the Polish idea that the way you build statehood is by having an educated class of citizens who are responsible for both culture and for politics, which they call the intelligentsia, and the Germans use the same word when they describe their policies 
in Poland, they say intelligence, and, and in Russian, the word intelligentsia appears as well. So there's this general, there's this consensus that the, among the, both the occupiers and the occupied, that the state inheres somehow in this group of people. And so what do you do with this group of people? You try to destroy them, which the Germans and the Soviets do in striking harmony. I don't think they communicate with each other very much about it. I think that's a myth. But they pursue very much the same policies. But the other thing which the destruction of the Polish state enables, of course, is the beginning of the escalation of the final solution. Because it's only with the, it's only with the destruction of Poland that the Germans find themselves confronted with large populations of Jews. There are more Jews on these lands than there are Germans. Um, and there are more Jew, far, by far more Jews in the lands that they occupy in 1939 than, than, than there are in Germany. In 1939, in Germany, only one quarter of one percent of the population is of Jewish origin. Suddenly, with the invasion of Poland and the annexation or control of about half of it, you have around two million Jews. And then the Germans start to think seriously about how the final solution is going to proceed. This is when the ghettos are set up, and the ghettos are set up with ideas that these Jews are going to be deported um, to places like Madagascar. But the point is that the destruction of the Polish state is not just important in, in, in symbolic political terms for Poles. Um, and the destruction of the Polish state is not something you can overlook, even if all you want to understand is the Holocaust. It's the kind, it's the kind of phenomenon which I, I like to think and hope a, his, a history like mine can bring to bear. Because in national histories, it's, it's just taken for granted. And in, in histories of the Holocaust, it's just ignored. But we have to find some other place between taken for granted and ignored. We have to see the existence or the non-existence of states as a kind of variable which history can come, can come to grips with. So that, that it's the Polish state um, is important because Poland is the only significant uh, independent nation state between Moscow and Berlin. So once it's gone, then what you're left with is the interplay between the, the visions and the powers of, of these two regimes. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what brought, you know, when I read your book, and I'm reading that, the section actually before the outbreak of World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What struck me, and I, like I think many people, you know, brought up in the West, I have a certain, you know, a certain prejudice. I mean, I'm more pro-Polish than many because of how I, you know, my intellectual journey. But I, you know, I still have a sort of view of the, the 20s and 30s as a, a, a difficult time. I mean, it is a state that has a difficult time working, as you just said. Uh, and yet I had a new respect for it and, and their, the difficulty of their position as I read that, you know, the, that early part of the book and how the polls are reacting before the collapse. And I think you're also right. I mean, this is the other issue when you, uh, the, another, to name another group, uh, as far as the Polish story that's affected by the collapse is the way the, the Ukrainians who, you know, while there's, there was, uh, a low intensity war going on, uh, to a certain extent, uh, there were mo- most Ukrainians living within the boundaries of Poland were accepting Polish statehood, and it was a, quite a shock to suddenly not have that state. And the, you know, the questions, they, the answers, they, ha- they had to answer that question too. What do we do now? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, essentially I hadn't thought of that. The idea that you would have one could have new respect for the Polish state. It's 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 an interesting. It's, it is interesting to think about how states respond to stress, though, isn't it? I mean, the Polish state was between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, um, and it was an author- authoritarian regime um, from 1926 forward, and it was descending into really un- a very unpleasant 
sort of authoritarianism after 1935, after Pilsudski's death. But nevertheless, when you compare the levels of stress and anxiety in a place like Poland in 1938 with the levels of stress and anxiety in a place like America in 2001, <laughs> what you say about respect is actually is actually kind of interesting because we you know the, the the people in the West tend to assume oh we would respond we would have responded much better than that you know we we would have been much wiser than that but when we're exposed to a little bit of stress um, we don't necessarily respond better um, I think it's and I think those kinds of connections are important to be made for us to try to understand what it's like historically to be in that sort of predicament between the Stalinist Soviet Union and between um, and between Nazi Germany. That, but it's not just a sort of theoretical or emotional question. There's an interesting question about diplomacy here, as you know, which is that if you're Warsaw, what do you do? And what the, what the Polish leadership did was try to preserve a policy of equal distance between the Soviets and the Germans. And the tragedy of that is that it's impossible. You just end up convincing each side that you're, you're with the other or um, that you will certainly not be an ally of that side, which leads to a policy um, which you ref- you refer to, but I just want to make it clear for our listeners, and that is the, the Soviet policy of mass murder of Soviet citizens of Polish ethnicity in 1937 and 1938. Something like 110,000 um, people were shot inside the Soviet Union, most of them ethnic Poles, not all of them ethnic Poles. Many of them were Jews or Belarusians or Ukrainians, but most of them ethnic Poles on spurious charges of being spies for Poland, um, which, of course, is, is, is an example of, of paranoia. None of them were spies for Poland. But it also reminds us of the geopolitical dimension to all of this and how it would be a kind of relief, as I think it was for Stalin, to just get rid of the Polish state, to just get rid of this border state, which seemed like it might be some sort of of a threat. Now, um, moving on, you know, when you get to this, you know, to the war, uh, you know, one of the key things, of course, the points you made out is that the the way we think we've learned to think about the Holocaust is not really the way it proceeds in terms of uh, who gets killed when and most and where most people are killed. Uh, now, you, when you, and I would like to bring that back. Is that something that developed in the research that's come out since the since the eighties, or is that just something that was known about but we didn't fully grasp its importance because we were so uh, in awe with the uh, with the concentration camps and the the uh, creation of death camps? Well, I, I think there are two things going on simultaneously. I think. The overwhelming image of the Holocaust is one of, first, the deprivation of rights, uh, then the, the concentration in camps, and then finally, death. And this overwhelming image comes from the experience of some German Jews, um, and it comes from the experience of, of survivors, people who could bear witness to the Holocaust, um, people who passed through camps or a camp, mainly Auschwitz, which was unusual uh, Auschwitz because it was a concentration camp side by side with an extermination facility, which produces the very unusual situation where you're selected for labor at the gates to the facility rather than back in a ghetto or rather back somewhere else. And so people arrive at Auschwitz and some live and some die. Most die. The enormous majority die um, among Jews, but, but some live, some are selected for labor and are still alive at the end of the war. And they're, they're able then to tell about the camp 
And that creates a situation where we have these stories which become iconic, essentially, and which are representative of the experiences of the people who tell them, but are not representative of the experience of the Holocaust as a whole. For Jews in the Holocaust as a whole, um, the, death was the death was the overwhelming reality, and people who died very very rarely had the ability to write about it before their death in a way which could be nearly as versatile, as sober, um, as, as 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 remarkable in literary terms as some of the post-war accounts of of the survivors, and also the materials that people left behind were generally the materials of the dead. I mean, were generally in Eastern Europe one way or another, and Eastern Europe after the war was behind the Iron Curtain. So the fabulous materials, the, un, the absolutely unbelievably useful materials at the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, for example, were very little used, and they remain underused to this day, for, for that matter. So we have an image of, 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 of deprivation of rights, concentration, and then finally death, um, which is theorized, which is consistent with, with, ex, with some experience, and which is theorized by Ralph Hilberg and his pioneering and an indispensable history of the Holocaust, which is theorized similarly by Hannah Arendt, who is borrowing from Hilberg, although she disclaims it, um, in her powerful work on authoritarian, on, on totalitarianism. The problem with this is that it's fundamentally wrong. Um, that's not the way that the Holocaust happened for most people. It's certainly not how the Holocaust began. The Holocaust began with an anti-Semitic regime. Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union and its units, beginning with Einsatzgruppen, but then police and Wehrmacht as well, began to shoot Jewish men and then to shoot women and children and then to exterminate whole communities on the territory of the occupied Soviet Union. That's the beginning of the Holocaust. The killing then spreads not from west to east, but from east to west in 1942, as the Jews of Poland, who had already been concentrated, are then are then killed. And so when you take the whole course of the Holocaust into account, you find yourself having to explain something a little bit different. It's very important that Germany is an anti-Semitic regime, but the Holocaust doesn't proceed so much on the experience of the Jews we know about. It proceeds more relevantly to the experience of the Jews that we have tended to forget about for a couple of generations, namely the Soviet Jews, the ones who were killed right away. Their experience is the relevant one because theirs is the one which is the beginning of the Holocaust, and also because it is, in fact, much more much more typical, much more representative or closer, if we have to have an abstract ideal type, closer to that than the experience of German Jews, which in many ways was, in fact, exceptional. Now, I said there were two things going on. Experts on the Holocaust know, have always known what I'm telling you. They had always knew, I mean, Hilberg knew back in the early 60s about all of the death facilities. He knew to an amazing extent, given the time that he was writing, about the shooting in the occupied Soviet Union. But what did not happen was that the, the, the image of the Holocaust and the arguments about the causation of the Holocaust, they were not reconciled with this knowledge of the Eastern character of the Holocaust. I think it's only in the last 10 years or so that the knowledge of the Eastern character of the Holocaust has become much more systematic um, as German and Israeli and, and other researchers um, have, have Polish have been working on it, but also it's become somehow harder to deny as these or harder to deny the importance of as these countries become real places, for lack of a better way to talk about it, places where you can go, places where you can see the death pits, places where you can do research. It's become impossible. It's become much harder to try to explain the Holocaust without the terrains where the Holocaust happened, especially without the terrains where the Holocaust 
started. So what we're seeing right now is this is this painful and difficult, but I think ultimately indispensable um, and very valuable attempt to get the image of the Holocaust um, into into alignment with the actual course, the actual chronology of the Holocaust. And what has to give way, I think, is the traditional concept of how the Holocaust proceeded, which is by steps, um, deprivation of rights, concentration, and then death. That That is just not really how it worked. Um, that's an inadequate account of, of what actually happened. In order to explain what actually happened, you have to have the anti-Semitic regime, but you have to put it at, into war against the state, the Soviet Union, which it, which it meant to destroy. Now, what I'm saying to you, of course, um, Holocaust historians also know and many important Holocaust historians um, in different ways have been trying to make these arguments. Where my book is a little bit different is that I'm not looking at these events just from in the East, just from the German point of view, as Holocaust historians um, overwhelmingly do. I'm also looking at them from the point of view of the societies and the peoples who were there, the Jews and the others, and from the point of view of the Soviet state. And that, I think, I hope, at least I intend, has a way of making the events become real not just perceived by Germans, but real obstacles or real problems, real sources of resistance or sometimes compliance and collaboration with which the Germans were dealing as the war on the Eastern Front did not go as as they expected. Well, yes, the whole kind of they keep on having to change their minds about their plans. Is I, you know, from what I remember from the part uh, part of the book where you know they they anticipate doing one thing, but they can't get rid of the Jews fast enough, or they can't do this, so they, or they can't get their German Germans in to run these new places quickly enough because they're still fighting the war. All of that she has to, you know, there it's so much uh, improvisation going on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, w- one of the things that I, I have difficulty getting across, or, or one of the problems that I have as I try to present the book is that is the power of national stereotypes. So people think Germans, and they think, oh, there must have been a plan, and they must have been very efficient. At the very end, the Germans were indeed extremely efficient at killing Jews, but their planning was was really marked by improvisation. Um, and they, they, it took them a while to become efficient. And this is where a comparison with the Soviet Union can be really helpful, um, just because it shakes you out of your assumptions about what Germans are like or what the Nazi regime was like. If you're looking for an apparatus which was really efficient in terms of the deportation or the mass murder of people in the 1930s, that would be the Soviet Union. The NKVD is extremely good at separating people out and marking them for deportation or for murder. It is incomparably better in the 1930s than any institution then going in in Nazi Germany is. The Germans um, want to do more. They want to kill more than the Soviets, and eventually they do, but the way they solve the problem is by starting a war and throwing ideologically indoctrinated people into the problem of how you get rid of populations. Um, and this is true on the ground, where the Einsatzgruppen receive very ambiguous instructions, which they eventually learn to understand mean kill men, kill whole communities. It's also true at the mid-levels of administration, where the Germans are re- German administrators and officers are receiving ambiguous declarations, which they eventually understand to mean kill all the Jews or starve all the people to death in this prisoner of war camp. Um, and they figure out how to do it as, as they go along. 
And as they go along, um, they realize that some of the things they wanted to do in the occupied Soviet Union they can't do. And they realize that one thing they wanted to do in the occupied Soviet Union, namely get rid of European Jews, they can do, but in a different way than they had expected. Up until 1941, no one's imagination, at least in any way that we have recorded on paper, went beyond the idea that the Jews were going to be transported away violently, bloodily, in a way which would have led to a significant uh, proportion of, of deaths of Jews. Um, all of these schemes, whether they were for a colony in Poland, whether they were for Madagascar, they would have involved a great deal of suffering and death. There's no question about that. But until summer 1941, even Himmler and Heydrich um, were thinking about some kind of forcible transportation of Jews. And, and, and they were thinking at that moment precisely of forcing Jews across the Urals um, into, into the Soviet Union. They were fantasizing, Heydrich, for example, about putting the Jews in, in the gulag. But what actually happens is, are, are two things. The first is that the Soviet, the Red Army resists, the Soviet state doesn't fall, so you can't drive the, the, the Jews across the Urals. But something else has happened simultaneously, which is that the Germans are learning that these Einsatzgruppen can kill Jews in fairly large numbers. The, the Ordnungspolizei, who are present, the order police, who are present at all of the, the truly large shooting actions, will kill Jews. Um, and there is sufficient local collaboration in the tens of thousands, and then as you get into 1942, in the low hundreds of thousands, uh, to permit you to carry out large-scale, increasingly well-organized shooting operations. One of the pioneers of this is a man called Friedrich Jekyll, who is uh, in charge of the first truly massive shooting operation at Communist Podilsky, where about 23,600 Jews are killed, and then becomes the higher SS and police commander for the, for the Baltic areas, um, where he where he uh, is, organizes methods of industrial killing, but not by gas, by shooting. In fact, he he, managed, he finds ways of shooting people at rates that are faster than than really anything else that had been known up to that point. Several thousands of people per day. I won't go into the details. Um, so what the Germans learn is that there is a possibility for what they call a final solution. But the possibility is not deportation, as they had always thought. The possibility is murdering Jews where they are. And in my view, that's a case which local commanders are making to Himmler. Himmler is making to local commanders. And Himmler is making to Hitler over the course of the second half of, 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 19, of 1941. And, and so it's, it's in practice that the Germans learn that the goal of eliminating Jews, which is there, it's present in Hitler's mind in his writings and what he says to his closest collaborators. It's present the entire time, that anti-Semitic goal. But the way that this can be implemented is different from what the Germans expected. Now, this kind of improvisation is awkward. It's much simpler for people to think the Germans had a plan. They simply carried it out. They did exactly what they had always thought they were going to do. I understand that that's comfortable, but it's not real. It's not what actually happened. And I think it's very important for us if we want to understand evil, if we want to understand the evil that happened, if we want to understand how evil manifests itself, that we see that it comes in different forms. And we see that we have to stretch our own imaginations sometimes to, to, to get to the depths of it. No, yeah, I think that's one of the things that's just generally important for us. Wars do always create situations, people, the unexpected. And of course they create because they also allow uh, for a lot of, uh, you know, the, the combination of disorder and imposed order 
uh, creates uh, um, an op- op- uh, the opportunity. I, I, but the comment again about breaking the stereotypes reminds me of that uh, quote by the isn't I think it's the Hitler's uh, chauffeur who said something like what they wanted a thousand year Reich. They couldn't uh, think for five minutes ahead. Do you know that quote? <laughs> no, that's that, that that's new to me. But there's there's definitely something in it. I mean, but the thing is that the ideology allowed them, Hitler especially, to constantly reinterpret every unexpected event um, and to come up with a new policy, which was usually bloodier than the previous policy, as an answer to that new event. So they, they weren't very good at anticipating what was going to happen, that's for sure. And they were they, they took a state which worked extremely well, um, and they were parasitical upon that state. You know, they, they're not who made the state functional. The state was pretty functional when they inherited it. They were parasitical upon that, upon a fairly functional state. What they created was this layer of unpredictable ideological commitment at the top of the state, which already functioned pretty well. And then they ran that state into the ground. While we talk about running things into the ground, uh, let's, you know, the, Stal- the Stalinists end up among the victors. And I think one of the other things, uh, and something you, I think gets downplayed when, even when you talk about the book, is what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, and what you do talk about. It's not that you don't talk about it, but I think that you know that's uh, you know you you do have a chapter about what happened, you know, anti-Semitism in the war in the Soviet Union, and also, I mean, again, we you know, turning back to Poland, you know, I, I have in my historical atlas, uh, it says. Uh, three million, you know, the, you know, th- uh, three million Jews, uh, three million Polish Jews, three million um, Polish Gentiles. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. It's been a standard figure that has been running around for, you know, since about 1945 or a bit later, I believe, from what your your book says. Uh, first, when did you begin to unravel that, or when did that idea begin to unravel? And how does that play into this post-war, you know, this problem that the Stalin, you know, a bloody regime itself has to deal with having come out on top? Right. So to begin from the second question, the, the Soviet Union was very good at isolating itself from reality, from world reality in the 1920s and 1930s. That was one of the great successes, if you like, of the Stalinist regime, that a new kind of order was being built within the borders of the Soviet Union, which for most people had very little contact or only very mediated contact with the outside world. The Soviets were were very good at that. They were building their own alternative reality inside the Soviet Union. And it's a difficult reality sometimes for us to get our minds around with our with our assumptions about the predominance of liberal individualism or the predominance of, of, of nationalism, it's often very hard for us to understand that there really was a new kind of society, um, however one wants to define it, being constructed inside the Soviet Union, where people really did think in, in, in different ways. That requires a certain amount of creativity. Now, I stress all of that only to say that this changes dramatically in 1941. In 1941, suddenly the Soviets are forced to come into contact with um, foreign countries because foreign countries are invading them. And I I say countries because it's not just Germany, of course. It's Nazi Germany plus Romania, um, plus a lot of Slovaks, plus some Croats, plus tens of thousands of Italians, plus Finland. It's a massive 
international invasion of the Soviet Union, which the Germans predominate in, of course, but which is in effect, you know, it's not so difficult to, to, to see it as the Soviets see it as, as, um, as, as the revenge of imperialism upon their great socialist experiment. Now, of course, the Soviets had had contact with, um, with the foreign world, uh, just briefly before in 1939, when they themselves annexed the Baltic states and, uh, in, that was 1940 and annexed Eastern Poland in, in 1939. And that was already quite stressful for the system because the Soviets saw that the standard of living in Eastern Poland, which by basically any measure, as you know, was a very, very poor place, but the standard of living in Eastern Poland was much higher than that in the Soviet Union. They couldn't help but notice that. So that was already stressful. And if Eastern Poland is stressful, imagine what it means then to be invaded by all of these troops who seem to represent a civilization which can do all kinds of things which your civilization, it seems, cannot. And and so the, the self-defense of the Soviet Union then becomes incredibly important. The self-defense of the Soviet Union then becomes, under Stalin's careful and very skillful guidance, um, the new ideological justification for the regime, because this, this, the system does defend itself against um, this imperialist encroachment, as they see it. The, the Red Army is already counterattacking in December of 1941, and the Red Army wins the war. And so that gives you a new ideological um, story to tell. Uh, and, and Amir Viner and others have written about this very well, but it doesn't actually solve the sociological problem for you that tens of millions of your citizens have had really substantial contact with the Western world. Um, whether that's the Western world as, as in the horrifying form of, of German occupation regimes, or whether it's the Western world in the form of, um, Soviet-occupied Hungary or Soviet-occupied Romania or Soviet-occupied Poland or Soviet-occupied Eastern Eastern Germany, or whether that's the Western world as experienced by the millions of Soviet citizens who worked as, as forced laborers, that all of that is a huge experience of the world beyond the Soviet Union, which is impossible to just legislate away. You can't just fiat away um, those experiences. And so the post-war Soviet Union has a new legitimacy myth, but it also has a new sociological problem, which is that you cannot now seal the country away from the West or from the world in the way that you had done before. And this creates, um, I think, a resurgence for Stalin of, of a typical um, pattern, which is that you become afraid of, of that which is both within and without. And at the end of Stalin's life, the preeminent example of this is is um, what he starts to see as the Jewish problem, where the Jews are not just um, a minority within the Soviet Union. They are now a, a, an ethnic category which has representation, as he starts to see it, not only in Israel, but also in the United States. The Holocaust itself becomes, from his point of view, a political problem, because the Holocaust because of its immense scope, cannot be limited to just the territory of the Soviet Union. Sure, about half of it happened on the territory which was in the post-war Soviet Union, but half of it happened elsewhere, and Jews who are in America or in Israel or elsewhere have their own memories of it, their own ways of talking about it. It, it, it is obviously very important, but it cannot be contained within the Soviet Union. And that's one of the many reasons why the post-war Stalinist regime refuses to acknowledge the special character of the Holocaust and begins to oppress the people who try to remind Soviet citizens in various ways of the special character of the Holocaust. Um, and this leads to 
something which was some it leads to the purge of Jews at the very end of Stalin's life, the murder of several Jewish activists, the deportation of many more, um, and the, the preparations for something which looks like a, a larger Jewish action, though we'll never know what was going to happen because Stalin dies in the midst of it in early March 1953. But one of the ways that this, this Jewish issue is dealt with, that one of the ways that the special character of the Holocaust is dealt with in the communist world in general is to deny its specificity um, and, and to just count the Jews as being citizens of the country in question and thereby blur the special character of Nazi policies. And, you know, this didn't have to be done insincerely. Communists could really believe that the Nazis represented fascism and what fascism did was to attack the socialist world and so on and so forth. They, they probably did think in those universalist categories to some extent, but they also understood that there was a real political problem here. So the, the number three million, I'm getting the first part of your question, three million non-Jewish Poles who were murdered seems to have been, in fact, a Stalinist um, invention. And the reason why Stalinists would have increased the number of non-Jewish Poles was so that it would be equal to the number of, 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 of Jews who are Polish citizens. If you say, as, as we all said, um, for, for decades that it was three million Jews and three million Poles, then there's a kind, there seems to be a kind of, of symmetry there. There isn't really, in fact, because, um, there were only 3.3 million Jews in Poland, whereas there were, you know, close to, close to 30 million Poles. So there's not really symmetry in terms of proportions, but there seems to be. Um, but in fact, the number is probably somewhere between one and two million Poles and something like three, and indeed three million Jews. Um, and, and this this has been this has been clear. It's become it's been coming clear in the 1990s. Um, but it's not something that people in general are, are, are willing to accept. You don't like to have your own numbers go down. If there's a universal principle, it's that you don't like to have your own numbers go down, which is strange in a way, because you might think that it would be a relief to you if fewer of your own people were killed. But somehow that's not how people generally reason about it, or that's not how the politically articulate people reason about it. In general, you want to have larger numbers um, so that everyone else can be aware of your tragedy and so on. But I think the facts are that uh, that the number of Poles who were killed, although horrific, um, is significantly smaller than the number of of of, of, of Jews who were, who were killed in Poland. And, you know, this, I tried to apply the same principle for, for all the numbers. That is, I did my very best to be specific and accurate about them and not to be concerned about the various polemics that are, that are going on about them, regardless of, of, of where that might lead. So anyway, um, what I say about the numbers of Poles killed is not actually controversial. Um, it's just something which has not been broadly accepted yet. And I have to say, I've been impressed that in Poland, as far as I know, almost no one has reacted negatively against that. Like no one has said, oh, he's reducing our martyrology. Um, people in general have been have been pretty sober about accepting where the numbers actually lead. Well, that, that's very comforting. I mean, maybe this is the exception to the rule about the that you were just describing. And of course, it it also suggests a growing maturity and a, a, with Paul's own ability to wrestle with their history. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always hard to try to characterize a moment in anyone else's national intellectual discussion. I, I think that I think that the polls are are compensated, so to speak. By, the, by, by what you mentioned earlier, namely that Poland itself figures in the middle of the history, and although I don't give them the numbers that they might be expecting, I do I do incorporate 
events that are familiar to them, like deportations to Siberia or, or, or cutting into a larger European history. And I'm adding a whole event, the Polish national terror of 1937 to 1938, which Poles generally didn't know about, um, in, into history as, as well. So I think, I think Poles feel that I'm treating, I'm treating their subject fairly, um, which, which I like to hope everyone is going to feel. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this has all been wonderful. I just have, uh, we're sort of coming to the end of the interview. A uh, couple of questions. First, uh, you know, for someone who's interf- interested in this interview, apart from reading your book, which I do heartily recommend to anybody, uh, it, uh, just enjoyed it so much and learned so much from it. Um, but where would you advise someone who gets interested in this subject, maybe is uh, a young person and thinking about where they're going to go, uh, do uh, research? Uh, what would you expect them to suggest they do to uh, explore this issue further? Well, if you're thinking about becoming a historian of, of these issues, the first thing I would recommend is that you learn, you know, German plus or Russian plus. That is, learn learn one of the learn the languages of the of the powers and then learn at least one language of the people in between whether it's yiddish or whether it's polish or whether it's ukrainian i think that's that is what is still missing um or or is in short supply among historians of the holocaust or, or of soviet terror um the ability to to know about the center but to go beyond the center and that requ- that requires in its turn spending some time in the region spending as much time as possible in the region especially when you're young because as you as you get older it becomes it becomes much harder so I think, you know, if people, the future, the, the historians who are going to be serious about these things in the future are going to be the people who have had adventures in these countries when, when, when they're younger, learning languages and, and, and making friends and getting a sense of, getting a sense of, of the geography. It seems a simple point, but I'm really worried about it because we're not doing so much better with multilingual or regional um, history now than we were 20 years ago. And in some, in some ways we, we seem to be doing worse. I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, that is a fear of mine as well. And I, you know, I can speak for uh, three, well, um, altogether five wonderfully interesting years um, in d- different part countries in that region as part of my youth. And, uh, um, you know, they brought me different, inter- you know, different experiences each time I was in, you know, I was in Germany twice and Poland for a year and uh, then in Ukraine for two years. And all of them have, uh, can't, the, the, Ukraine was hard. That was 1992, 94, but it yeah. was, uh, it did, Got me my wife, so I can't be too, <laughs> too upset about that. Uh, but I think you've mentioned before, um, as far as, you know, things to read. I mean, obviously they can't get, you know, to those places immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I think you've talked about Vasily uh, Grossman particularly as someone to, that you would recommend to get as a eyewitness. Yeah. I mean, if, if people who want to read literature should and get an, an Eastern perspective, which will seem fresh, could 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 do no better than to start with Vasily Grossman, who was a very important figure for me in this book, as as I hope I reveal in the book, and whose uh, last two um, surprising, wonderful novels uh, have have been retranslated and and republished um, by by um, good translations, very good translations by Robert Chandler, by New York Review Books within the last within the last few months. I think Grossman is probably the key literary figure who is reemerging 
as we begin to think about the Holocaust as an event in East European history and as we begin to see um, the, the Western frontier of the Soviet Union as a place where particularly horrible things happened. I think I think he is the crucial figure. And literature is, of course, what matters. Historians do their best, but it's the memoirists and it's and it's the novelists who um, capture the particular juxtapositions that then invite the questions that, that we try to research. It's the novelists and the memoirists who bring public attention to things. So, yeah, Grossman would be an excellent place to start. Thanks for mentioning him. And uh, finally, uh, what's your next project? Well, at the moment, I am I, more or less um, a, a prisoner of my of my past self uh, as I continue to, to talk about the book. I've given a very large number of talks about this book, which has been enormously gratifying to all sorts of people in a number of countries. Um, that's been enormously gratifying, but it's also meant, um, together with the birth of my son, that I am more or less uh, concentrating on these issues for the time being. I've written a book of essays uh, as I've traveled, as I've been thinking about these issues, as I've been seeing the problems of of communicating some of my arguments and at the, some of the successes of communicating my arguments. I've written a book which is called why don't we understand the Holocaust? Question mark. Um, which is more, that's more or less done. Uh, the, the next thing which will come out under my name is, is a bit different. It's a book of conversations with the deceased historian Tony Judd, who was a great influence upon me and with whom I spoke at the end of his life about, uh, the main themes of 20th century intellectual history. We managed to finish that before his death in last August, and that will be published in early 2012 under the title Thinking the 20th Century. I have a lot of projects, Hugo, as I usually do, um, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to undertake until I actually start start working on it. But there's a sense of, of where I am right now. Well, yes, I've been seeing you've been all around, and it's, it is gratifying to see you get that this book gets so much attention. You get so much attention, and I would just say that uh, you've got some other books before this one that are equally valuable for people to take a look at. I mean, reconstructing nations uh, is valuable, and there uh, and the book about the Red Prince. These are all entertaining and interesting books. So. Uh, I'm sure you're going to do something more that will continue uh, to uh, provide us with more, more new insights. So thank you very much for uh, ha- taking the time out to speak with us today, t- uh, Tim. You have a wonderful day. Thank you, Hugo. It's been my pleasure.